The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Matt Peterson, the Ideas Editor at Barron's. My guest today is Neela Richardson, Chief Economist at ADP and co-head of the ADP Research Institute. Welcome, Neela. Hi, good to be with you, Matt. You too. Um, By the way, everybody, we're doing this episode audio only, so if you tuned in hoping to see my handsome face, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, But Neela, let's talk about the labor market. So I want to get your big picture view here to start. Investors have been focused on employment news because it plays a big role in the Fed's decision, and the Fed seems to be perpetually vexed by what's going on, and so am I. So what is your story about what has happened to employment broadly since 2020, since the end of the pandemic recession? Well, Matt, thank you for the question, because big picture, the labor market is incredibly solid and yet incredibly fragmented. And, and that fragmentation has sharpened during the pandemic. But since it's at the micro level, it's harder to see. Broadly speaking, though, if we could zoom out 10,000 feet, I think there is not a decade in which this labor market wouldn't be celebrated. Like if you look mm-hmm. over the past 50 years, and every one of those decades, this would have been a highlight in terms of the jobs market. You have unemployment rate uh, close to 50-year uh, lows. Of course, it went up a little bit uh, this last month, but that was because so many people came back into the workforce. In terms of prime age workers, labor force participation is back. Uh, we've gotten uh, starting to see an uptick in older workers that were uh, hit hard by the pandemic. They're starting to come back. Uh, we're seeing monthly job gains that are steady and solid from a historical perspective. Uh, there's a lot to cheer about. And yet within all of that, there's a lot of deep fragmentation. Some industries are doing better than others. Some workers are doing better than others. And there is this undercurrent of wage pressures tied to the fact that a bunch of companies tried to hire all at once in 2020. Um, and that still has ramifications uh, even two years later. Uh, by the way, I can think of one person who is not celebrating this labor market, which is Jay Powell, right? Who has constantly gotten up on television <laughs> and told us, you know, Oh, I mean, maybe he's happy about people working, but it seems like a problem for him, right? I mean, this is the dynamic that we're seeing in markets is that people are working and it seems good, but like, well, he's not happy about it, but also like voters and the electorate aren't happy. We're in a vibe session, right? Right? Do you, I want to talk about fragmentation, what you're saying, but, but why do you think it doesn't necessarily seem obvious to people that all this is a good thing? One word, inflation. <laughs> that's, right. that's the fly in the ointment. That's what's, you know, triggering concern from the Federal Reserve, obviously. Yeah. And, and, you know, traditionally, the way through inflation was through the jobs market or the way through inflation was through the housing market. Neither one of those markets are contrib- uh, uh, cooperating very much these days. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you, if just quick 
quickly aside on on housing, if you look at the bulk of where the consumer price inflation is coming from, 70% of it is coming from shelter costs. So it's not playing that role that the Fed would like to see in terms of easing uh, inflation. And then on the labor side, we've seen wage growth just spike, especially for low-wage workers. The trick here is uh, double-digit wage growth for this group, uh, we think it peaked in June of 2022 at around 17% year-over-year. And yet, for the worker themselves, that, that only translated to like $5,000. Mm-hmm. So everyone's concerned about high growth because they're looking at the growth rate. But if you look at the actual level, people who are making less than 30000 a year, it doesn't translate a lot of dollars and cents when you're facing a world of higher rent costs, higher oil prices, gas prices, higher food prices. And that is the disconnect between high wage growth and what workers and consumers are feeling in the context of inflation. Yeah. So you you raised the $64,000 question there, which is that these markets don't seem to be cooperating with the Fed. And I've heard a lot of theories about why that is, but I'd love to know what yours is. Why? I mean, you mentioned housing, but but talk about jobs. why, Why is the labor market not doing what a lot of people seem to expect it to do? Yeah, shortages, labor shortages. There's just you know, what we saw in the United States, I think there will be books and books and books written on this. Or maybe not. Maybe um, <laughs> our, our automated AI system will make a book unnecessary 50 years from now. But uh, what what is interesting about this time period is what happened in those first two months during the pandemic when 20 million people lost their jobs. And then over that summer, uh, about 7 million workers were reemployed, but it took a long time to get workers back. And in that interim, um, there was a lot of wage growth. Also, what was challenging for this time is the, the jobs that were hit hardest were low-skill jobs that were fungible. Um, you may not have needed a high school diploma. You didn't need advanced training. And so that means there was a lot of churn and job switching. You could be a, a restaurant worker, you could be a daycare provider, or you could work in a warehouse. And with the new opportunities that came from the pandemic, mainly the digital economy, there were certain shifts in the wage dynamics and the returns to, to working in each of these different sectors. It made a lot of sense, for example, to work in a warehouse when people were ordering a lot of stuff online and they needed to get uh, its workers in the door very quickly. And so I think all of this, the timing issue, companies hiring all at once really changed the landscape of worker pay. And we're still trying to figure out the aftermath. Is this a permanent shift for companies that they have to pay up faster for low-skilled jobs than they did before the pandemic? Or is this something that we think will peter out the further we get from 2020? Well, what's your what's your view on that question? I was going to say what you're describing sounds a little bit like the the taboo word transitory changes, but you're saying maybe maybe it's not actually maybe these are longer term shifts. I think it's a longer term shift because if you add other things like the aging of the U.S. workforce, the fact that the non-working population is growing so much faster than the working age population, you see that, you know, labor shortages are probably unlikely just to disappear altogether, especially in these uh, low skill jobs where pay tends to be quite low. Um, And in fact, uh, 
we're, we're still seeing the effects of higher pay growth for this particular sector. So um, I think it's something to watch, but demographics, as they say, are destiny, and the destiny is pointing to uh, a, a permanent upward trend in labor shortages. That's interesting. So what do you think that means in the bigger picture for um, for the economy that we're heading, we may be headed for a longer term sort of labor shortage economy? What, what does that look like? The Federal Reserve, it's interesting. They are mostly a short term actor, right? Yeah. They're invested in the current cycle. But the shifts that we're seeing in the labor market are persistent and long term. Uh, for, and taking that labor shortage example, the BLS actually estimates that the that U.S. employment levels will grow at half the rate over the next decade as it did the previous decade. Hmm. So our our employment is being cut by half. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that means that wage pressure doesn't just exit; it sleeps and it may be awakened. And and so the future of inflation in my mind is a future where we don't just say, okay, inflation is going to be 2% or around 2% for the next decade. It's a world in which we say, because of these underlying uh, dynamics in the labor market, we might see periodic bouts of inflation up and down over the next 10 years mm-hmm. tied to labor market shortages and supply chain shocks, uh, which I think are also now a more persistent part of the global economy. And do you think what, what is the role that monetary policy has to play in that? I mean, are you going to see the Fed, you know, constantly chasing these um, these shortage effects? I mean, it's, because as we're saying, it doesn't seem like it's able to do that much at the moment. Yeah, I think of the Fed right now is super focused on getting to its 2% target. It's a really important line in the sand. Uh, if you listen to the commentary coming out of Jackson Hole, not only for the United States, but for Europe, and that's really to anchor expectations of, good, of consumers and businesses at that 2%. If and when that 2% target is reached, I think there will be a rethink of what the new Fed monetary policy will look like in a land of persistent labor shortages and, um, and maybe episodic inflation. I think there is some interesting uh, dynamics uh, that are different uh, than what we saw in the 10 years of economic expansion before the pandemic, where the, the, mm. the issue for inflation was that it was too low, not too high. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, I want to come back to um, this question of fragmentation that you raised at the start. T- tell me more about what you meant by that. Yeah, so we tend to talk about the labor market like it's one one thing, but it's actually a microcosm of a lot of little different things. And during the pandemic, we saw uh, that fragmentation actually sharpen and these little things collide <laughs> against each other. Now, labor economists who study the micro structure of the labor market call it segments, but that word is misleading because segmentation is, sounds orderly to me. Fragmentation sounds mm. like there's sharp edges. And and so let me just take one. One of them that 
that is interesting. And we can talk about others if there's time, but I tend to look at trends that were evident before the pandemic, but were amplified by the pandemic and continue to persist. And one of those is geographic fragmentation, right? People were not moving to high-cost cities like New York City, San Francisco, eventually Austin and Seattle because it was too expensive to live there, even though these were the job creation meccas of the pandemic. Uh, There's still a worker shortage that many companies hope to fill by immigration and A1 visas. Well, that situation, that high-cost, of housing as a deterrent for mobility hasn't changed. But what has changed is the new technology around remote work. That allows companies and workers to make different decisions than than they used to. And we've done some analysis at the ADP Research Institute that shows that, you know, remote-friendly jobs that are high value, like C-suite and management jobs, are still concentrated in those expensive cities. But other jobs that are highly mobile, like customer service representatives, are being farmed out to less affordable, I mean, excuse me, more affordable cities around mm-hmm. the country. So there's a, a disconnect and an over-concentration of some occupations relative to others. And you can see that. Um, and that has interesting social and political implications, not just for the labor market. Yeah. Do you do you want to continue on that trend? What do you see developing because of this? Yeah. So if you have cities where there is this widening disconnect or where the middle class is hollowing out, uh, it does affect communities. So let's take an expensive city. Let's say San Francisco, which kind of stands in its own in terms of not really having a peer. But sure. one of the things I, I know that we both care about is the, the care economy. Those are the the teachers and the nurses and all those wonderful support people that allow working families to actually do their jobs. Well, San Francisco is an example where it's really expensive for teachers and firefighters and police. Uh, Those firefighters and police are part of that infrastructure, maybe not exactly the care economy, but that social infrastructure that is needed to support, you know, thriving cities. And you're seeing a real challenge there. getting that kind of care economy to support that high-end job creation. So that's just one example of an effect uh, when you have this hollowing out of certain jobs within cities. Yeah, you presented some research on the care economy at Jackson Hole a couple of weeks ago. You want to tell us more about about what you found? Sure, sure. Uh, So, again... It's not a, a, a part of the economy that a lot of people talk about, especially in the relationship of monetary policy. <laughs> but, but one of the things that suppresses, uh, you know, out of hand wage growth is having strong labor force participation. And for women especially, and we saw this during the height of the pandemic, you need a strong care economy to have that labor force participation. Uh, It's often called the workforce behind the workforce. It's the workforce that allows for the other workforce, the ones that, you know, the tech jobs and the, and the medical jobs and the oil jobs and all the, the higher profile jobs that actually uh, happen and be productive. And, and what we saw, uh, a couple of interesting trends, we saw that for two occupations, nurses and teachers, there are some shifts. Uh, experienced nurses look to be leaving 
that profession. They're going into other professions and the overall tenure of uh, nurses has fallen and has fallen uh, pretty sharply over the last five years. Different trend for teachers, we're actually seeing that young teachers are leaving the profession and doing so at, at dramatic rates uh, over the last two years at the end of the school year. So the question before us is like, if we're seeing these these uh, trends of, of young people leaving or more experienced workers leaving uh, certain care professions, how will this uh, care economy be able to support the workforce as it grows and as it ages? Yeah, those are, those are great and difficult questions. Are you concerned about the, the sort of the cliff that people describe this sort of end of um, pandemic era federal payments that's coming up soon? How much does that worry you? Well, we're, we're in September, right? And September mm -hmm. is when those so the first, first week of school for my kids here, by the way. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mine too. Um, we're in October, those first uh, student loan payments are also due. So I, I think we, we do have a, a, a bit of a, a shift again for the household budget to reorient around uh, the, the full exit of uh, federal pandemic spending from their wallets. So that's going to be something we get used to, and it's going to arrive right in time for the Christmas shopping season, mm -hmm. uh, the holiday shopping season, excuse me, more broadly, starting with, you know, Halloween through uh, New Year's. And I think that's going to be a really important place to look in terms of can households still hold up to the, the level of spending uh, that we've gotten used to them doing uh, through the 2023 holiday season. Yeah, we're getting some good questions here from the audience. So I'm going to bring some of these in and just encourage anyone else who's listening to um, to, to drop them into the Q&A. So we'd love to hear questions. Um, uh, one, one from Hal here, very straightforward, something we haven't talked about. Isn't immigration the missing link to a balanced labor market? Yeah, immigration is important. Um, it's important in, in a lot of different sectors. We we tend to, to look at it, or at least before the pandemic, because that's where the shortage was for high-skilled tech jobs. But when you look at some of America's uh, cities in the Rust Belt, had it not been for immigration, those cities would be losing population now. If you look at, like, poultry, uh, manu I guess it's not manufacturing, but production, lots of um, immigrant labor in that. And then my always my one of my favorite use cases outside of the labor market is housing and construction jobs and how important uh, labor is from South America and how important that labor has been to building houses in the United States and the labor shortages are, are one of the reasons why we see housing costs still um, uh, unaffordable for many areas of the country. So not enough construction there. So yes, I, it, it's that, but it's also the idea of worker mobility more globally. I mean, that's one thing I think opened everyone's eyes is how globally interconnected we are. We, we, we learned it in a really bad way with the, like a virus. That's not the best way to learn mm. that. It's better to learn that through soccer or football than it is through <laughs> a, health, a global health pandemic. But I do think that as, as companies expend, extend their scale, there is going to be a more of a desire for a globally mobile workforce where you can source talent 
from a lot of different places uh, and build that kind of resilient workforce uh, that can help mitigate geopolitical risk or the risk of extreme weather events or any other kind of risk that a company, a lar especially a large company, might face in the future. Um, we have a question here from Equan that's uh, along the lines of uh, what, what companies are doing. He, he wants to know, or she, I'm sorry, I don't know the gender. Uh, how are companies motivating young workers to fill low-skill jobs instead of trying to be YouTube stars or play video games for a living? Which, by the way, I would love to do that. So if anyone knows how to make a living that way, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, how how are companies dealing with a you know a globally mobile workforce? What what are you seeing there? Yeah, I I I think that's such a great question because I both of my my boys have at one time said they wanted to be Instagram influencers. So <laughs> <laughs> so that's a real that's like. And, a and how did you feel about that? <laughs> well, uh, one is in college and engineering and the other one is very heavily motivated by math so you can see that we <laughs> right. we leaned into that and tried to change the trajectory <laughs> but um they'll probably just end up on on instagram anyway doing engineering and math but to the to the point um i i think it's an important question because you when you think about this young generation and how they started the workforce it's not just that they were in low-skilled jobs that's a big important factor which companies have tried to resolve by uh, bigger bonuses than we've seen in that industry traditionally, higher pay in that industry and higher pay growth in that industry than we've seen traditionally for low-skill workers. In fact, low-skill workers are driving most of the gains in wage growth over this three-year period. And young people, because they are over-indexed in low-skill jobs, they're seeing the highest pay gains. So that's to answer the question, how companies have dealt with it thus far, but I think there's an endpoint to how how far far you can push up wages. Uh, but the second piece of that is a lot of young people joined companies after spending maybe uh, either a couple years remote in college or joined in the first you know few months of the job they were sent home to work remotely um, or even worse because young people were the hit the hardest during the pandemic um they were furloughed in the entry point to, to their careers so rebuilding that trust getting them back into office you know mental attire not just actual physical attire mm. is going to be part of the uh, transition for companies and how to engage young people again how to build that trust that they won't lose their jobs with the with the next hiccup in the global economy um and how to train up the future of the workforce yeah that's interesting i mean you're framing this in sort of the, the opposite way that you often hear about or discussed which is that you know young people you know, it's just sort of not showing up at work and they're disconnected from the workforce and they like it that way. But you're describing this as a, as a company challenge that, you know, managers need to understand that they need to hang on to this workforce. Um, right. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're in a symbiotic relationship. Uh, companies need mm -hmm. workers, workers need companies. And, you know, I think one of the things that we are really invested in at the ADP Research Institute that doesn't get talked about is worker sentiment, how people feel about their jobs, how they trust their managers and their management team. Mm -hmm. We've built tools to help people figure that out, help, help uh, hiring managers and managers figure that out. But it's an important part, especially coming out of the pandemic, I mean, we could play a game with how many words 
have been used to, to describe the worker sentiment, like mm -hmm. cold, what, what is it, quiet quitting and loud right. quitting and um, the great resignation and my personal favorite, uh, bare minimum Monday. I don't know if you know what that is. <laughs> I missed that one, but I, I think I'm on board for it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, worker sentiment is really important. What we found is if you have a workforce that is defined by grit and loyalty, you have a highly productive workforce. So the trick is how do you build that one where your workers, whether they're young or whatever stage in their career, have motivation and commitment. We think that it's actually not a trait. Like this generation are just more motivated than that generation and mm -hmm. we just have to live with that. I don't think that's how it is. I think it's something that can be nurtured. It's something that can be motivation and commitment can be nurtured by companies with young workers and even older workers as well. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, is there anybody you know that's doing that that well? I'm curious, like what practically speaking that looks like. We we've seen a couple of things. I mean, I guess the short answer is, in in total, um, when we look at the data and we are able to look at skill development across a really large swath of companies. In fact, when we when we looked at this rigorous it was over uh, a four-year period, including 52 million workers in over 90,000 companies. And we found that very few companies invested in skill development. Less than 4% of those workers uh, received some kind of skill development that we could quantify. Hmm. So this is a place of amazing opportunity for companies to skill up their workforce uh, in order to, to, to be positioned, you know, to, to take on all the different opportunities and there's significant opportunities ahead, but you need to have a workforce who's able to evolve with those opportunities. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wanna bring back a question, uh, ask a question that brings us back to sort of the bigger macro picture. Um, this is from Alan who says, uh, you made an earlier observation that ADP sees lower than average unemployment over the next decade. So what does your forecast mean for wage inflation? Actually, those numbers come from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Mm -hmm. They put out a report in November of 2022 that said that uh, uh, employment would be lower over the next uh, decade. And it was mainly based on retirement. Uh, you know, it's an aging population and the expectation of a lot of uh, retirement for boomers. So what does that mean going forward in terms of the macro economy is that the labor market is losing a big source of expertise and knowledge. Hmm. Retiring. Now, I, I know from firsthand knowledge of like parents and my, my, my father-in-law that a lot of people leave the labor market. That doesn't mean they actually retire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've seen that show up in terms of new business formations and LLCs. And it's my thought that some of these retired workers come back in non-traditional roles or contractor roles. And so I think that could change some of the more dire aspects of labor shortages going forward. But the idea is that this is an aging population um, without differences in, in the rate of immigration, it's really going to be um, uh, challenged uh, to fill some of these jobs and also upskill appropriately the people who are already in the, in the workforce. And by the way, an aging population represents another challenge for the care economy because you need a lot of exactly. people, yeah, helping out here. Exactly. Um, yeah, things the care economy as well. Yeah. Um, 
One other question I just wanted to ask quickly uh, was about um, who's getting the benefit from from rising real wages, which we've finally seen um, in the last couple of months. Um, how are you seeing wage growth distributed across the economy? Who's finally, who's who's gaining? Who's not? What do you see here? The biggest gains have been, like I said, at, for for people making at the low end of the income distribution. So particularly leisure and hospitality workers. Um, uh, that is a, an industry marked by a lot of low-skill workers. Let me give you some context here and then explain what, what might be happening as we go forward. Uh, for low-skill workers, and in particular this industry, before the pandemic, wage growth was either just above inflation, barely treading water with inflation, or negative. And in fact, what we saw is that the gains from switching jobs within that industry actually were also negative. We didn't get a pay bump from switching jobs. Very different scenario than happened after the pandemic. Now we're seeing those wage gains start to slow, but the question is, are we going all the way back or is this a, a, an impermanent increase in the competitiveness of low-skill workers? What we may have seen is a structural change and the demand for low-skill workers that will lead to um, will put a floor on wage growth that is above inflation, that is quite significantly above inflation. So that's one of the dynamics that I guess one of the winners, hopefully, as inflation goes down, some of these uh, low-wage occupations uh, retain uh, some of the wage growth, but that comes also with some balance for companies who may be facing narrow margins. That's the thing about economics. There's always two sides. So (laughs) a gain for someone else that has to be mitigated in some way. Let me just, I know we're we're close to time, but one thing I would, I push through this, the way to get through labor shortages and slower growth and all these dynamics that we're talking about is already underway. This technological boom that promises to make workers more productive, I think is how we get higher wage gains, higher profitability, but also lower inflation. So that's the space to watch. Yes, you you brought in the AI question there at the very end, which I know our readers are thinking about here. Um, Well, that we can have a longer conversation about that another day. Um, but why don't we leave it here? So, um, Neil, thank you so much for joining us and, and thank you to our audience for tuning in. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, please come back again on Monday when my colleagues Lauren Rublin and Andrew Berry will have a discussion on the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.